This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Beehive banter is back for 2024, certainly earlier than we anticipated. I remember last year, which seems so long ago now, saying to my colleague Brent Edwards, not much will happen till February. Let's start again then, then. So, imagine our surprise and delight when Auckland Light Rail is killed off after spending over $200 million and not a track in sight, although no real surprise. Imagine our knowing smile when Paul Goldsmith said no to a bevy of recommendations from the Electoral Review, uh, with David Seymour giving the probable reason, and then reports start emerging of an MP shoplifting, ending with Golra's gone. Faster than the bag she allegedly nicked from an upmarket boutique disappearing into another bag. Mind you, I'm only going from the video. And the fact that she basically admitted it when saying she acted out of character. Uh, Brent Edwards, stress, mental health, badly affected by stress relating to her work. Now, whilst not commenting, some are asking did the stress come out when she was caught and would she have carried on with the stress of the job and big salary visiting shops she'd, had she not been caught. But I digress. A shocker. Yeah, well, I mean, you think a year ago we had the Prime Minister, then Prime Minister, resigning. We did. Um, This obviously is not as big an event in a sense in terms of it's a a Green Party MP not holding a ministerial portfolio or anything of that nature. But again, a shock and the reason for going, of course, over the shoplifting. Um, You know, just another example, you know, following on from um, last year's events with ministers and the Labor government sort of falling over over a variety of misdemeanours as ministers, not, you know, uh, or perhaps the closest thing you can think of is the former Justice Minister, Kerry Tapu Allen, who, you know, crashed her, yeah. her vehicle and what have you and was then involved with the police over that incident, which led to her resignation. And um, same reasons given? Same reasons, mental, yeah. But I, look, I, I'm not going to downplay the mental health no. issues. And we've known for a long time, for instance, that, that women MPs in particular get a lot of vitriol, particularly on social media, and Goras Garaman in particular has yep. been subject to that. Now, in her statement, she said this was not an excuse. She's not using it as an excuse for her behaviour, but as an explanation. And it would appear maybe, if you you know looking at it, that the shoplifting incidents, therefore, were actually when her mental health issues became apparent. So I, you know, look, you take her at a word at the, you know on that issue, uh, but she had no other. Um, sort of position to take other than to resign. She has resigned. I mean, I think people, some people are piling into her. Well, actually, she has borne the consequences already of her actions. She's had to resign as an MP. She's suffered a huge amount of, you know, public humiliation, really, in terms of the coverage. And then she will still face, obviously, the... Um, the court the, date. The, the court issues, as with the police charging her. So, you know, I don't think anyone could say... She somehow has got away with it, or and putting up mental health issues that somehow is deflecting it because actually she's already paid a pretty heavy price. Well, you pay a price for what you do. Uh, yeah, but MPs, people in I the public eye, tend to pay a bigger price. And that, and that, um, is, and that we, is true. Although we know some well-known people manage to keep it hidden for a long, long time, and still do. Yeah, and still do. But and still no, do. Not not generally though, politicians. No, but it doesn't bring in the broader question that. 
you know it's awful, you know it's going to be tough, you know you're going to have vitriol, you know you're going to be attacked on social media. You you go into politics with that knowledge. I'm not saying it's right, because it's not, and it's definitely not right the way that she's been attacked. But you go in with that knowledge, and you also go in with a rather large salary in compensation. Well, look, politics is a tough business, there's no doubt about that. But, but I do think there does need to be some consideration by the level of personal vitriol that's going on at the moment, particularly on social media. I mean, I think we would like in our democracy to see strong and robust debate between political parties, contest, you know, they talk about the contest of ideas, but we're not often seeing the contest of ideas, certainly not on social media. What we're seeing is just really deeply personal, vindictive and abusive attacks. and, and, And that's true. That is absolutely true. But the and, weird and thing I, is we go in knowing that well, that yeah, is going to happen. Look, doesn't make mate, it right. Mate, I, yeah, it, it shouldn't happen. Though. No, it shouldn't happen. I do agree. How do the Greens handle this? Because a lot of people say not well. Yeah, look, a lot of people have criticised the Green Party for the way it's handled this. But I'm trying to think back to other political part, you know, with other political parties handling sort of, if you like, scandals or issues like this. I can't think any party's handled it any better than this. And if you think about it, once it became public, the Green Party, they stood her down from her spokesperson's role, so she was stood down as soon as she gets well, back. Did, well, was she stood down? Because it, well, the reports came out saying that she had resigned from them. Well, she had stood aside from them for the moment. I, I think, though, you can say that that would have been in part with dis, in discussion with Green Party leaders, co-leaders and what have you. And then as soon as she gets back, she resigns. And, and the Green Party... Well, no, she was back for a few days before well, she resigned. Well, pretty much as soon as she got back, really. I think it's done pretty quick. quick. So I, I think, you know, could they have done much better? There was a police investigation going on. They may not have been... I mean, quite often sh- it's very handy, isn't it, to have that thing, oh, we can't comment because well, there's a police investigation. Well, oh, we can't comment because it's know, but, under the know, courts. I know, but, you know, look, it's, it's just past the middle of January and it's all resolved. I know. And it's resolved politi- politically. So I think, actually, my observation of other scandals involving politicians and the like, yep. it's gone pretty quick. Uh, no matter how you look at it, it's still a big loss for the Greens. Uh, look, you know, I mean, no political party would want to start the political year or, or even through the year. No, but having, I mean, Gomez had a, talent, and she certainly, you know. Oh, oh, yeah. Look, she was. She she provided, you know, that that refugee background, which some people are getting into too, and sort of criticising her around. So, which I think is part. But she ha- she brought a perspective that not many other MPs brought to this. She brought place. a diversity to this and, place, yeah, which is sort of. And needed. she was and she was outspoken on yeah. issues, which. Also help because I think what you'll find is women MPs who are more outspoken will then tend to attract more abuse. Um, so in that sense, you know, she'll be a loss for the Greens, and um, you know, now I guess. But but as I said, given the events, I mean, they they couldn't, she couldn't stay in Parliament. So no. they'll be hoping she's gone. The Parliament year starts. The repla- her replacement, oh, Celia yeah, Wade Celia Brown, Brown will be biking in, in from the Wairatha, will she? Yep. And so that <laughs> these issues, you know, regarding Golra's Garaman will be, you know, I'll be hoping will be soon forgotten by the public. By the next scandal, by the next political scandal. Yeah, just where that will come, we don't know. No, but it'll be soon. So to the first real no-surprise statement of the new government for the year, light rail to the airport in Auckland, gone. And as an aside, how do you spend over $200 million and build nothing? Yeah, well, that, I mean, obviously that's always nothing. been a criticism. I mean, one, you would hope that, that the $200 million they've spent, which is which went on a lot of consultation, planning and all of that, that somehow that can be used for, you know, the development of other transport modes in Auckland to help relieve well, like what, congestion. What are you going to do now? 
Well, that'll be the interesting thing once the government um, finalises its, you know, its new statement, government well, the policy fir- statement on transport. Well, the first thing they're going to do but is allow congestion charges. Well, possibly. We'll wait and see. I mean, that's certainly the National has been um, sort of considering that matter when they were in opposition, so you'd have to imagine some sort of congestion charges to help fund um, whatever take, takes place in oh. terms of you know, improving yeah. transport but, in but Auckland. Speaking of charges... The EV owners, oh, up to about $1,000 a year now, road user charges. Road, yeah. Yeah, about time. Well, about time, according to some, and they say it's a consistency, but obviously there's those who are complaining about that. And quest- what, because they're saying, oh, I had to spend $70,000 on a Tesla, and now well, you want to charge me a $1,000 road user charge. Yeah, That's well, not fair. The, the interesting thing will be... Boo-hoo. The interesting thing will be to see whether that change in policy does put any dent... In the you know and what we were seeing is a rise in the purchase right. of EVs and hybrids. Now, you know, two or three years from now, you know, there'll be a judgment made. Has it actually put back that move to try and, if you like, yeah. um, you know, decarbonise? Well, they're the working on the trickle down theory, aren't they? Which is the more that come in, then they'll sell them. And, and it's move interesting on too, and... like the, the transport industry sector, you know, trucking industry. Yeah have started to now call for the government to try and provide some sort of, looks like me, some sort of subsidy to help the, the trucking industry decarbonise. Oh, Three water's gone, light rail, etc. We need a lot of answers on replacements. Yeah, well, that's right. Now, the work now needs to, well, I presume it's already started in terms of the government coming up we with, so. OK, what are its you know fully detailed plans for Auckland Transport? What are its plans around um, water? And we, we're seeing continued problems in three waters infrastructure, yeah. so it's not an issue that can just be put aside. Yeah. Um, you know, National had its own policy, but there were question marks over whether that would particularly do the shift in terms of upgrading and improving water infrastructure. So, yeah, I mean, it, there's a lot of work to be done. and Well, we need answers. Well, you need answers, but, you know, to be fair, it's early days yet. Yeah, but, but you can't just stop something and then no, not say what I know. Well, that, I think I made that point at the end of last you did. year. Very easy to stop things. A lot more difficult to come up with the alternative right. proposals. That's true. Justice Minister Paul Goldsmith ruled out several recommendations from the Independent Electoral Review set up by the previous government, including lowering the voting age and allowing prisoners to vote, etc. The four-year term, of course, is waiting a referendum. Is David Seymour right when he said, if implemented, it would set New Zealand on a course for a permanent left-wing government? Well... I mean, it's an interesting comment because one of it relates to, because he says, oh, look, 16 and 17-year-olds are going to vote yeah, this way. I mean, yeah, Greens probably. Well, it's, it's like saying, well, if you're in a position of power, if you looked at, oh, over 65-year-olds might vote that way, well, let's change the rules so they can't vote because, you know, we want... You know, it's. I, I don't know that he, he's entirely... And prisoners. True, but Do prisoners pr- vote for that? National or right-wing yeah. governments? I well, don't know. yeah, but what is he, about nine or 10,000 prisoners? I don't think they'll swing an election. But One person... One electorate by one vote. I know, but, you know, shift 10,000 votes. But these, but I think one of the other things he didn't like was around um, stuff to do with funding because the um, commission's, the um, panel's uh, recommendations are around restricting um, private donations to $30,000, yes. not allowing businesses, organisations, unions or others like to make donations yeah. and providing a bit more... Um, taxpayer Parity. funding, so he, he, that also sees as part of leading to a, a left-wing government. Um, I don't think that is probably a particularly viable argument for saying whether something's wrong or not, but he's always criticised the review panel's um, recommendations from the interim report it put out last year as saying it was simply the Green Party's 
manifesto. And now he's in a position of power to do something about it. Anyway, now all of us, and as you read, see or hear this, the Nats will be winding up or have already their caucus retreat. And of course, the hui call by the Maori King is happening this weekend. Next few weeks, Ratana, Waitangi Day, and Parliament resumes. One word, Brent, to describe how you think this year will play out. One word? Yes. Oh, intriguing. Intriguing. My word is tumultuous, meaning disruptive, troubled or disorderly, even making an uproar. Yeah, possibly, but, but it's interesting because, you know, we've, we've had this discussion about people were complaining about how uh, protesters got out on the streets at the yes. end of last year complaining about what the coalition government was doing, and they were saying, that's not fair, that's not fair, and then I was actually looking back at some earlier stuff and came across a news story with a photograph, you know, not long after the 2017 election with David Seymour leading a protest down the street <laughs> protesting about the then government's policy of getting rid of charter schools. So it's not new. Um, and one word to describe uh, how I think you will be this year? Knowledgeable. There you go. What's a word to we, describe how you think I'll be? Hopeful. <laughs> hopeful that I'll be knowledgeable. <laughs> and so it begins. <laughs> this is the beginning. What else is in store? Thanks for taking the time. We do appreciate it. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. The political year has begun with a spectacular fall from grace for Green MP Golrez Garamib. Talk about that. I'm joined by MBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. Uh, so, Brent, can you quickly sum up what actually happened? Well, as we know, um, in the new year, what became public were allegations of, of shoplifting um, in Auckland against Golrez Garamib. She was overseas, so the, the story sort of ran for a week or so without any great response. She's come back from her trip and then she's actually immediately resigned as an MP. Um, without going into the detail of the the allegations in her statement, she says she's let people down and her conduct. She's not excusing her conduct, but in her statement she then talked about the fact that she was facing mental health issues and that's, you know, so as she said, not an excuse but some kind of explanation for why she might have acted in the way she did. So the only option on the table was a resignation? It'd be hard for her to stay on with, you know, those allegations, which she appears to be confirming are correct. So, I mean, you can't imagine an MP would resign if they, there wasn't some uh, truth in them. So um, those sorts of things, yeah, it would have been hard, I think, for her to have managed to carry on as an MP um, with those allegations. Uh, and we know there's still a police inquiry going on. We don't know where that will end up, whether, you know, charges may or may not be laid. We don't know any of that. But, you know, in the end, it's probably the only thing she could have done. Although I think her statement also made clear that, that maybe she's resigning more in terms of to deal with her mental health mm. um, issues. Um, and, you know, as she made the comment that um, the stresses of the job were, in her view, part of the reason for the state of her mental health. She does cite mental health, as you mentioned. Does this raise concerns about the state of politics in New Zealand? Well, again, it, it comes back to the issue, and this has been commented on before, and I know some of her... Um, you know, close friends or aides have talked about it. You know, the amount of abuse that that MPs can get on social media, um, 
in 2019, some of that abuse and threats were so great. She apparently, was, you know, was given some security escorts. Um, I know, you know, former Green MP Gareth Hughes has commented that, you know, he wouldn't wish those comments that she received on his worst enemy that they were disgusting. So that's the sort of thing. And often, women MPs but particularly women MPs, Māori, Pacifica and from other ethnic minorities, seem to be subject to more intense social media attacks perhaps than male MPs. Well, that's not to say men don't get it, they do, but it, it, it does seem to be a particular pile-on for women. And we, we see that too in the media world where women, women journalists, not just in New Zealand but actually across the world, and get a lot more abuse on social media that the men do. So the focus is on the effects from social media rather than this place, this building. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this building's not, not an easy place to, to work in, but, I mean, the nature of politics is that there will always be robust debate. But I, but I do think, you know, clearly, you know, what is happening is that the, the impact of social media and the engagement on social media, and, and politicians cannot not engage on social media. You, know, you could say, oh, turn off... You know, all of your social media apps, what have you. But you know, for a politician who's trying to engage, that's almost an impossible task to do. So, it it is, I think, largely driven by the impact of social media that's making a lot of this stuff much, much more difficult, um, particularly for for women MPs. And and it affects you know, women across political lines. Um, but I think those who are perhaps outspoken and and take positions on what might be controversial issues, which Garaman has, I think, might then find themselves in the firing line even more. And, and it is worrying because, um, you know, people shouldn't be dissuaded from entering politics uh, because of the nature of that political dialogue. But, you know, there probably is a, a number of people out there who would probably be saying, why would I want to be an MP or get into politics if I'm going to face those sorts of social media attacks? And, and we know the impact they can have on people. Well, ha- what lessons can be learned from this and how can this place help facilitate a more well, supportive environment? Well, I mean, you know, there's already been work going on here in Parliament around supposedly, you know, the, the bullying sort of um, culture that's talked about in Parliament. But, you know, managing social media, we, we all know, f- is, is incredibly difficult. Um, all that can be done, I guess, is for it to be monitored and for MPs to be given assistance and help um, wherever possible. And, and I, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that might need to happen, which we haven't seen a lot of, is that, you know, when those when those sorts of social media comments cross a line, that there perhaps needs to be much more pol- active police intervention to to go after these people because you know there is a as I say there is there is a degree of abuse and threatening behaviour going on on social media, which you know you could say has a chilling chilling effect on free speech and democracy. And any lessons for the Green Party here? Um. Yeah, that's a hard one. And they've faced some criticism for the way they handled it because it kind of ran on for a week or more. And in that vacuum, there was a lot of speculation and a lot of news stories without any great response. But, you know, you can't, it was hard-pressed, I would think, for them to really respond properly until Golros Garaman got back from overseas. So, you know, lessons, I mean... You know, I think they've said they that they already try and do what they can to look out for the mental health of MPs and the like because, you know, maybe if she was struggling and then that was part of a factor that led to this behaviour, uh, maybe. But, you know, it's hard to see what more, frankly, you know, they necessarily could have done. Um, 
maybe they could have come out with a stronger statement right at the beginning, but I, I guess really they, in terms of natural justice, they had to wait for Golris Garaman to get back and actually respond to the allegations herself. And, of course, once she got back, it got resolved pretty quickly. I mean, she put out the statement, she's resigned, and so it has been, in the end, dealt with quite quickly. Brings Edwards, thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. The Productivity Commission gets wound up at the end of February, but before then, it has outstanding work it needs to get done. To talk about that, I'm joined by Commission Chair, Dr Ganesh Nana. So what is it that you do need to complete before, before the end of February? Well, we've, we had a, a programme of work that we were underway, and um, so that, that had started long before the announcement of the disestablishment, so we're hoping to get as much of that completed um, before we do wind up, um, and so we've accelerated some of the timetable, but we do want to get, um, in particular, four pieces of work over the line, um, and, the, and the big pieces is the... Uh, uh, improving Economic Resilience Inquiry report that was, um, according to the terms of reference, due on the February the 15th, and we uh, fully expect to um, hit that milestone and we'll deliver that to the Minister on the 15th and um, release it to the public soon thereafter. And so just rem- remind me, that that's looking at just how we respond to... Disruptions and disruptions. Well, I I think it's it, well. I, I know it's around that word resilience and how resilience is no longer a nice to have, and it's and it's bound up together with obviously with productivity, but all of those things that drive productivity around innovation and investment in our people, investment in the workforce, and dare I say diversification. That word that we've heard so. Uh, we, we've tried to tried to get for so long in the New Zealand economy around our export base, not just diversifying the products that we put off send offshore, but also the markets that we send them to, because the shocks or the disruptions that we're um, withstanding and, and looking ahead um, are not just around um, internal disruption and, and supply chains, but also are heavily related to the the external climate in terms of the geopolitical changes out there in terms of our export market. Uh, potentials and I suppose the assumption that's driven us for the last I suppose 20, 30 years we've sort of assumed that our export markets were open for business and open to us to send as much as we could and that's an assumption I think we can uh, no longer assume because um, what we see in the in the trading environment um, lots whether it be politics or whether it be economics those those markets may no longer be totally open to us and we do need to broaden our uh, our um, the markets that we send to send our products to, and I mean you're also looking at um, putting out a report on business by numbers, which I think is a follow up to the productivity, productivity by numbers. numbers. Yeah, so absolutely. what exactly will business by numbers? Well, well, I suppose, as, as you say, the twin to the productivity by the numbers, productivity by numbers was was very much looking at the economy from the top down and the drivers of productivity from the top down. This one looks at more of the bottom up, where what is happening in, in the businesses at the ground level and, and what is the nature of that business. And and we've heard a lot about New Zealand as being a New Zealand being an economy of small businesses. Well, what does that actually mean? And, and, and looking at that in detail in terms of the numbers that we have available and, and what is driving that productivity at that at those uh, at that level in terms of businesses, in terms of workforce, in terms of uh, business operations, business decisions, and management capability, workforce capability. So it's it's looking at it, and so those two are companion pieces to each other. It's 
probably a, a sign that we, we shouldn't be looking at productivity just at that high level and, and also not just at that low level. It's the combination of those two. But, but wasn't the idea too that these would be ongoing? Absolutely. So, okay, sure. you know, you, you're being disestablished, finish the end. What do you hope is going to happen? Do you, you hope that maybe the Treasury will, will pick up some of this work? What's the Well, the, the objective is to ensure that, uh, in, in terms of completing this work, but also to ensure that all of our work is available for future. Uh, so we're working uh, closely with Treasury to ensure that the the work and the, the intellectual property, if you like, that, that has been built up in the Commission uh, remains available in the public domain uh, for other organisations to pick up. Um, we... Uh, we as a commission are agnostic as to who would pick it up, but we definitely are keen for some organisation or organisations uh, to pick that up because the, the productivity challenge, not to mention all those other ch- other challenges, ain't going away. And, I mean, I guess one of the things is because you're being disestablished, I mean, I guess it wouldn't have been hard to think, oh, well, you might have just put your feet up. Oh, absolutely not. And and, and um, whether you're talking about individually or all, all the yeah. others, um, other staff members in the commission, um, and that's one of the other pieces of work we've got underway was the Future Pathways work, which was uh, initially to inform future inquiry topics for the commission. But we've, I suppose, refashioned that to uh, put down the wheel, uh, the challenge for not just us as individuals but other organisations about what are those future challenges and what are those potential inquiry topics that need to be picked up by somebody, um, whether it be the public sector or organisations in the public sector or the private sector or other research institutions or other people willing to... Um, engage in that policy debate and discussion, which has been very much the, I suppose, the co-papa of the Productivity Commission in the past. It's not just delivering reports, but it is encouraging that debate around those future challenges. Can you give me a, an idea of maybe what you would see the priorities as in terms of what might be done in the future? Well, one, you know, that Future Pathways work was very much um, beforehand lots of workshops and engaging with broader, um, I suppose, organisations and um, community groups and, and everybody, and well, not everybody, but a, a broad range of people and organisations around New Zealand and of a, a, a fair number around the climate change challenge and what do we do and a, a, a bit around the, I suppose, the costs and benefits of going fast versus going slow in terms of that adaptation challenge that we've got that we got got out there and, and probably put the case that actually we might not have the option to go slow. Um, a, a fair bit around, I suppose, workforce challenges and, and what do we do to build the the capabilities of, of our workforce um, and the skill sets and, and make it fit for purpose for the next generation rather than looking back. A fair bit around that diversification of our export markets. And then also, you know, there's lots of stuff. And then there's this stuff around land use, which I think is the, the elephant in the room in New Zealand and in the New Zealand economy around land use, not just from the, the, the transport housing type and, and the Productivity Commission has done work in the past around housing, but not just not just land use in terms of urban, uh, uh, residential versus commercial versus industrial, but also within the, the, the primary sector in terms of around types of dairy, types of agriculture, agriculture, horticulture, forestry, uh, all of those things, um, I suppose... To get, bringing those together around, you know, what are our land use options and, and broader natural resource options in the world of fast changing climate and fast changing, dare I say, 
opportunities in the product market in terms of what do we deliver to our export markets. I mean, g- given your time in, in the job and, and, and what you've seen from the studies done, are you more optimistic or more pessimistic <laughs> about New Zealand's prospects to really lift its productivity growth? Well, I, I suppose if you allow me, I'll turn the question around and say for me to be optimistic, we've got to embed a, a much longer term time horizon when we're looking at things like productivity. I think we have to be honest with ourselves and stop looking for that, that holy grail that's going to suddenly turn around our productivity overnight because that's the wrong way of looking at things. If we're serious about productivity, we've got to be serious about a long-term investment strategy, call it what you like, strategy, programme, call it what you like, and that's investment and not just our hard infrastructure, whether it be transport or other or climate change adaptation, but also our, for example, our soft infrastructure. And, and so there's those community networks, there's those businesses, you know, that business by the numbers, what have we embedded in them in terms of that long-term investment profile? And dare I say that workforce, are we, do we have an appetite to invest heavily in our workforce for the next generation rather than the, dare I say, the the quick solution that we seem to have adopted in the, in the recent past, which is bringing the work for workers from overseas um, and that immigration policy we've done in our immigration inquiry um, recently. I think those findings and recommendations in that immigration inquiry still stand the test of time, whereas the accompanying inf- investment to go alongside whatever immigration policy we, we adopt. Ganesh Nana, thank you for your time. Thank you. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.